What Brings You In Today is produced by medical students at the University of Wisconsin. As medical students, we are not fully trained physicians or licensed to practice medicine. The information presented here is for entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or education. To preserve privacy and maintain patient confidentiality, identifying details about patients were changed for this podcast. All opinions expressed belong to the speaker, not their institution or employer. Hola, I'm Mayra Betancourt Ponce. And I'm Lee Berman. And this is What Brings You In Today, sharing stories and experiences from within the medical field. So tell me, what brings you in today? We all have a story. Telling those stories helps us make sense of thoughts and experiences and can be healing. Today we talk with Jean Lagaki, a UW social worker within the Department of Palliative Medicine, whose work in dignity therapy exemplifies the power of storytelling as part of end-of-life care. Jean, first of all, thank you so much for being here today with us. Thank you. It's my honor. <laughs> We're excited for people to get to know you, so can you please share a little bit about yourself and introduce what you do as a palliative care social worker? Sure. So I've been a social worker at uh, UW Hospital and Clinics um, at University. That's the new name, University Hospital <laughs> and Clinics. I've been there uh, for 15 years now. Uh, this is my 15th year. And I pretty much started along the oncology service line in the hospital inpatient and did a lot of discharge planning and assessing and gathering of resources for people who were usually getting a, a new acute diagnosis somewhere in the cancer and the, the hematology and, and bone marrow mm -hmm. transplant lines, as well as, you know, needing acute hospitalization for a person that's been living with cancer. I, I tended to see people at the very beginning or more regularly near the end of their uh, cancer career. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, there was a lot that I didn't see in the middle. I didn't see people living with cancer, being an inpatient social worker in oncology for about for close to 10 years. And so um, I began getting this interest in palliative care uh, as I saw the work that they do um, on the cancer floor uh, and other places of the hospital. And I wanted to know more. And I really liked palliative care because, it, I mean, of course, we all try to attend to everyone and what they're about and dealing within their lives. But palliative care is designed to really look at the quality of the life of the whole person, um, mm -hmm. not so much focused on a particular uh, system or diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So uh, palliative care attracted me. And back then, there was only one member of the outpatient palliative care team, and she was doing dignity therapy with uh, a patient that was right near the end of the life. Usually you want to do dignity therapy at a time where someone is not actively dying, but this was a particular case that had been started and stopped and her symptomology changed quite a bit and they were trying to finish something up. And I was a little curious about that experience. 
given my view of what I was looking for mm-hmm. uh, to deal with patients and families. I wanted to do more than some of the more typical and objective social work things that need to get done when you're inpatient, get them in and out, you know? Mm-hmm. So seeing that in new therapy, I, I was a little interested in did a little research and it totally fit this philosophy and feelings I have about dealing with patients and families. And so that nurse practitioner and I got talking and we developed a pilot to do on my floor, though I must tell you, uh, dignity therapy is best done when people are living with cancer or their diagnosis, not at these extreme times of their life. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I fell into palliative care. The dignity therapy just sort of gathered me in. That's very interesting. The concept of dignity therapy caught my attention because first of the name and second, just exploring what you do. So could you tell us more about what dignity therapy means? Absolutely. So dignity therapy, even though it's got the word therapy in its title, it's really meant to be this rather intimate experience where you sit down with, usually it's someone facing an acute illness, but uh, a life-threatening, you typically, because life review is, is part of what folks like that who do get these diagnoses, it's pretty normal that they engage in uh, taking stock of their life. Mm-hmm. So dignity therapy is one way that you can sort of assist people who are experiencing that, but it's even more than that. Um, Before I tell you what it's even more than, dignity therapy is not just something, though, that is for people with acute illness. Um, It's been done in all kinds of settings. There's been a lot of research done on dignity therapy. It's been done with people who have life-limiting diagnoses, but it's also been done in places like jails Hmm. with people who are facing life sentences. What an interesting concept to look at these important questions with someone who is really sort of existing Mm -hmm. within a whole controlled system. Yeah. So I just want you to know it can be done in lots of different contexts. That's one example. But it is meant to be a life review where someone is taking stock of their life and You actually sit down, so I have an office right across from the chemotherapy desk where people check in, and um, you create an intimate setting, and really, uh, we're still using a digital recorder, um, though during uh, this time of of COVID-19, we have not been doing dignity therapy in person um, very much because of where things are at Mm -hmm. um, and not wanting to expose patients. But in normative times, it can be recorded and you, you really just sit down with someone and ask them these, these amazing questions. There's about 10 of them that I tend to follow. But like this, a podcast, it's meant to be a conversation where you simply go and, and, and have the person take stock of, of, of the questions and explore them with them. And when the process is done... Uh, people, uh, we have been transcribing that that recording, uh, and they get actually a hard copy paper document that we work on and edit with them. Of course, we kind of do the first rough draft, but the patient's really much in char- very much in charge of the story they want to get across, speaking to the people in their lives that matter to them. 
And so it becomes a legacy document. That's pretty cool. It is cool. Can you tell us what questions you actually ask people? Absolutely. I generally start with the first one uh, being pretty open-ended. So in looking at your life, can you tell me uh, what are the parts that you think were most important? And adding on to that, once they kind of begin looking at their life, whether it's in chunks or themes or whatever, when did you feel most alive? Mm. I like that question. (laughs) Yeah. And then we kind of proceed on through the rest of them. And, and they're actually somewhat related, but 10 different questions about when you look at the roles that you played in your life, what were they? And, and when you look at those roles that you played, what do you feel you accomplished? Hmm. Also, um, what are you most proud of in your life uh, is, is one of the themes Another is the, um, when you think about your loved ones, do you have any further like instructions for them or advice you want to give them about life? And then a flip side of that question is, is there anything that you would like to take the time to tell them once again, or share with them now, if you hadn't told them something? So people generally will recount these amazing times of their Mm -hmm. life. They might talk about um, choices that they made in careers, and yet family was most important. And they'll talk about uh, one time I had this amazing woman talk about her wedding day, and um, just wanted just wanted to talk about um, what things had looked like and how happy she was that that her dad was able to be there for her. And um, she reflected that, you know she had hoped that her family in the end wasn't mad at her because she had had enough of her chemotherapy Mm. and that she said she had associated like making this decision to no longer have chemotherapy. She she just said, I hope you guys won't be mad at me and and know that I needed to walk this way. Just like when I married and you were doing this, I need, I need to do this. And she connoted those two things together and um, she just wanted them to know that she felt that her life was, was going to be fine. And please don't be mad at me. Well, that is so special. I cannot imagine all the stories you've heard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like when you're listing those questions, it sounds like those are all like really natural things to be thinking about if you receive a terminal diagnosis. But this therapy like provides structure and provides like validation to be thinking about it and a place for it to be like written down. Is that kind of how you think of it as the potential to be healing? Like just giving space for these things that are probably already in people's heads. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes some people have been doing their own legacy work on their own. And for some people, they might structure this to be their way of this is the story that so so there was this one gentleman he he had decided that it was going to be read at his funeral and so he inserted there were other rituals that but he actually planned it and brought aspects of the questions in and um, sort of had a, a slideshow with some of his words so that was that was really cool so he actually used it in his funeral rituals some people write letters on their own to their family and their loved ones and that it so much is not so much a message for their family, but it's, 
it's just a recounting of their life. And for some people, it's this reflection and this process. And it's just a chance to get across to their family in an organized fashion who they who they are. And and they may be doing other things for legacy, but for some people, this was this was gonna be it. This was the only thing they were gonna get get, get down and done. Sometimes that's just some people's choices. Is there a particular patient or someone that you have in mind when you think about this healing process and how this therapy can be so healing for people? Yeah, it was interesting because sometimes in palliative care, we walk people up to a point of their disease process and hopefully they live as long as possible with whatever's going on. And um, sometimes when people sign on to hospice, we'll sign, kind of send a note wishing them well and things like that. And sometimes we don't have the chance to, um, you know, we'll, we'll see obituaries and stuff like that after people die once we help get them to the point of signing on to hospice. Well, I was actually able to find out the healing that it brought to someone because there was a patient, an amazing man who he had a professional life, worked in pharmaceuticals, um, retired, and like, unfortunately, within a very short time of retirement, got a metastatic cancer diagnosis. And he unfortunately, all along the way, just never got good news. Wow. And so, you know, from the time of diagnosis to his death, it, it was probably less, it was probably close to 10 months or a year. And so I did their dignity, his dignity therapy with him. And Thankfully, we got it done when we did, because probably within about six to eight weeks of doing dignity therapy, he began actively dying and he died quickly. Hmm. And during that process, he addressed it to his wife and two children. And when we did the editing, I did it with him at his home back when we could go to those kind of places because it worked best for him and his schedule and what was going on. So we did the editing as home and his, his, his wife ended up giving us privacy and stuff like that. And he didn't share the document with his family at all before his death. Hmm. And he shared it with them after. And I would say it was during COVID, probably sometime within the last four or five months, I got a phone call from his wife. And um, she had um, a situation going on uh, and she just wanted some information and she reached out to me and I was able to answer her question. And she ended up talking about her dignity therapy, getting that document and reading it. And she was so sad that they hadn't held on to his voice in a recording. Mm -hmm. And I think something had happened with one of their devices because sometimes people will hold on to voicemails or the recording to leave a message or whatever. Mm -hmm. And because things happen quickly, she had hoped that I still had the voice recording. And right now, the way we have it processed, we're not sharing the voice recording. She was actually, she said, you know, I'll read that document. And it's, 
it's like I hear his voice sometimes. Because hmm. really, we there are parts where, you know, you do a, an edit, that, but who they are in their voice. I mean, you've, you've, you've transcribed and, and, and gotten their voice down. Mm-hmm. She shared that, that the document meant a lot to her because she was worried about losing the sound of his voice. And she said, well, at least his words and the way he said things. And she said it brought her a lot of comfort. She had, she said it wasn't so much the story and all the different things he talked about. She said it was just knowing those were his words and, and he said them the way he always talked. That's very sweet how it influences not only the patient, but also, you know, their loved ones. Absolutely. Are there any other stories or particular patients that you feel really emphasize the important role that dignity therapy can play in people's lives? There was this one case where the patient had metastatic disease and uh, he, he just was putting off the dignity therapy. And he finally said, yeah, I want to do it. And he was a pretty simple guy. He worked with his hands they had been dedicated to their kids. Um, he had his own business in the trades, and he had been really successful, but they had really been focused on on their life with their kids, and there was probably some aspects of denial about how fast things could happen. So we did the dignity therapy with him, and we started, and, and he just, he wasn't able to fill in some details of stories. He had a hard time conversing. And what we did is it it just wasn't getting to the levels. And so we ended up, I don't know how we got to it, but he still wanted the experience. And we actually ended up doing the dignity therapy with him and his wife. Hmm. And she was able to fill in details. So he had brain mats and things had progressed Mm -hmm. and he just was losing his capabilities. But I mean, he was walking, talking, going places. I think he was walking with a cane. We ended up doing the dignity therapy with the two of them. And she was able to fill in details that he didn't remember. And then when he, she would be able to say things he would be able to engage a little bit Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden what what was happening was not so much the stories and what was going to be in the document but I will forever remember um, the emotion that was in the room Hmm. how they looked at each other there was a point where they knew there was things he couldn't say or do anymore they they knew that he was starting the dying process. And I mean, like within six weeks of him having done the dignity therapy, he had died. Wow. And we were only able to do the editing with his wife because he wasn't capable of it anymore. So sometimes like we're focused on, oh, we got to ask the questions right. And uh, we're going to produce this document and it's going to be chronologically makes sense or it's going to flow or whatever and in this case 
I mean, it came through so clear um, was their love and the experience of them. And so my office has this, you know, those vinyl type couches we have to have, uh, has one of those vinyl couches for two people to sit at. And probably for a year, we kept referring to the most amazing love is shared and things happening on that couch. (laughs) We ended up making jokes about there is the couch. That is that couch, the most powerful love stories that expressed on that couch. (laughs) My heart. (laughs) And it's true. It is true. Their, their love. It was just so clear. I mean, I could, the way they looked at each other, but, but it, it helped them. And, and and we needed to bring her in. And I've never seen, I mean, I've someone can express their love and stuff, but I mean, just literally see it, mm-hmm. feel it, palpate it in the room. There they were. Yeah, the couch. Yeah. <laughs> wow. The love couch. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Like, and then to have a document after that allows that person to then look back and like remember that time sitting there on the couch. Very special. Dean, this has been wonderful and really thank you so much for all you do and for speaking with us. Thanks for listening. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WBYIT underscore UWSMPH. We'll see you for our follow-up in two weeks. Have a nice day. Funding for What Brings You In Today is provided by the Kern Foundation.